0: hey hi it's mike watson here again from the acid left carrying on our series on the frankfurt school the frankfurt school today and for this third edition i have with us max rinan who is a tenured professor at alto university in helsinki and a theorist of aesthetics where he focuses mostly on excluded and outsider or underground practices maybe he'll explain in better terms maybe he has his own terms, I don't know, but I would say excluded and outsider practices. He published um, On the Philosophy of Central European Art last year uh, in which he proposes a no brow art production as a response to the dichotomy between high brow and low brow. So I'll be asking about that no brow in a bit, but we'll be talking mostly about the Frankfurt School and I think Adorno and Benjamin I haven't spoken about Benjamin very much yet with the previous two guests we had so it would be interesting to speak to Max about Benjamin because I know he's done some work on him and teaches sometimes I think also uh, about Benjamin so um, I have a first question actually and I guess I guess the thing is today a lot of people are saying what would Adorno have said about like memes, Netflix, also Benjamin, but a bit less Benjamin. Um, one thing to bear in mind is that Adorno didn't really mention any specific films or pop songs when he talked about stuff he didn't like. He, I think it's kind of um, it's systemic. It's, how would you call it? It's methodic. Um, he doesn't tend to mention specific stuff. He more generalises. But then you wonder, did he really know this stuff, what was he actually looking at? We don't know what it was he was hating so much. He did mention specific things occasionally when he talked about the kind of dark, abstract art and music that he liked, like Waiting for Godot by, um, how, can I, how can I not remember the name now, of the guy who did Waiting for Godot, Beckett, uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, um, and some pieces by Franz Kafka. So he mentioned, he mentioned positive stuff, you know specifically we didn't seem to know the negative stuff uh, so precisely I don't know what he was talking about but anyway he was so much a dialectical thinker that I don't think it can be the case that he simply hated this culture industry stuff because to him nothing is completely one thing or the other thing Um, things kind of cross over into each other this is his kind of dialectics and nothing can be just good uh, he, the whole point of his negative dialectics is we we won't resolve the antagonisms. We won't suddenly chance upon the correct way of doing things. So I don't think it could be so simple that he didn't like the culture industry, even not knowing his references. So, you know, I think it's more of a thing where he's, he's kind of playing off high against low. Um, we can maybe go more into his method in a bit. But without getting too much in, into what Adorno actually thought, how might we apply his method today, as we understand it. How might you use Adorno today?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, well, I think it was interesting what you said, uh, because Adorno writes, this might be methodological, and that's, that's a nice way to put it. As he says that, it's just pseudo-individualization. So so, so there, in his, I mean, in the way he thinks, there are no differences between pop songs or, or feature films, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, I think it's interesting that uh, Adorno wasn't the first one in the Frankfurt School who was writing about uh, high and low. You know, Leo Lovental wrote an article about uh, how how the, how the thinking of high and low actually appeared in the European cultural scene uh, in the French discussions of the 17th, 17th century. So uh, but, but what's interesting with Adorno, I think, is that I think you can clearly see that in his writings and nearly all writings, the highbrow is always somewhat... You know, it's like in a broad sense, Central European, Western Central European, French, German culture, maybe British, uh, Central European Jewish culture uh, uh, of the rich people and their cultural hobbies. And, and lowbrow could be anything. You know, it could be uh, uh, for a donor, a bad Japanese movie, for example, or, or a pop song from Brazil. But the highbrow thing is somewhat always, you know, it's kind of their stuff. And that's, that's, that, that keeps fascinating me. But I think Adorno is also very usable today, uh, even if he's kind of back and white in his thinking. I think he said a lot of interesting stuff. And the pseudo-individualization is one thing, definitely. I think we have a lot of culture where we think that you see people doing their own stuff, for example, on social media, and I'm doing this, and I'm showing what I'm doing, et cetera. It's all the same in the sense. you know. So, so I think he was the first one saying that people actually produce themselves, and there are no differences often when you think there are differences. I don't know
0: if you buy that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think, you know, part of the thing when people when people speak about Adorno now, they tend to say he he would hate, you know, memes or he would hate that, you know. Well, as I said before, Netflix or Instagram culture. And I'm just wondering how much he hated anything. Um, oh. <clears throat> he seemed to be a bit beyond that, and he was obviously one of the first people to actually look at this stuff, and he did he did actually write music for Hollywood films that didn't get used. He tried to be a um, soundtrack musician for Hollywood films. So he must've been watching some and, you know, it, it would appear from reading the culture industry essay in the dialectic of enlightenment that he doesn't like any films, you know? Um, so it's kind of interesting, but, I, I, but when I'm thinking about his method, I'm really just thinking, his dialectical method, when he's not actually ever looking for, you know, the thing that's going to kind of port us to a better kind of way of life. He's really down on that. What he sees with um, Samuel Beckett, his theatre is more something that explodes our false kind of rational way of living and kind of shows to us how absurd everything is. Um, And from that, maybe we put the pieces back together. But actually, I I don't think Adorno really thinks we would then put the pieces back together. I don't know what Adorno then thinks we would do, frankly, with this exploded reality. Um, Mm. But, you know, I think there's a place today to say, there's not really good and bad so much. There There are kind of different cultural forms that are antagonistic towards each other. And it's the antagonism that maybe we need to move away from. Then there are kind of abstract forms. Uh, Which are less about antagonisms and more about exploding reality again And you end up with like a kaleidoscope and you have to like try and make sense of that. And I think um, I mean, that's that's often overlooked that Adorno was looking at abstraction Um, Mm. But actually that's a good question. I haven't actually written when I sent you the questions What would you think would be an abstraction for Adorno in that sense today?
1: That's a good question, but I could like, I would like to go back to something you said, actually, first. Uh, I think there's, a, methodologically, again, like I said, he has certain method, methods of, of, of writing. And also, this is something you discussed with Martin Jay. Uh, I think there's a paradox in Adorno's writing. First, he explains this whole system where you have, like, the car advertisements and, on, on the bottom. And then up here, you have Beckett and Schoenberg and all this stuff that is totally pure and negative and it's not at all it's, you can't use it for any hedonistic mass culture uh, purposes. And then in between is all this stuff that is somehow cheesy and, 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 and just compromise, uh, uh, false, false enlightenment. But then in the end, what he does in cultural industry, for example, he makes it totally spectacular. Uh, it's an apocalyptic text. It's really entertaining to read. And, and, and often I think students find it fun to read because it's actually totally exaggerated. And in the 60s, you know, I think it's published 44 first, or is it 46? But then in the 60s, he worked a lot with reception theorists. And, uh, and he, I don't know if he changed his mind, but in, I think in one interview, he says that, that he, he wanted people to wake up, you know, when he wrote that with Horkheimer. So he had to exaggerate a bit, which is interesting, because this is something that he actually thinks that, that all this uh, cultural industry is doing. So cultural industry as an essay is kind of a product of cultural industry. You could say, but what would abstraction be today? Well, uh, I'm pretty sure that as a historical dialectical thinker, uh, I'm pretty sure that Adorno would not keep the same line of thinking about art that he had then, you know, because what he was then discussing in modernism was cutting edge at the time and and it and it formed really a difference to mainstream culture. So, uh, today museums are showing those works, you know, people are talking cheesy stuff about the monarch history, lectures, public lectures, and, and I'm, I'm, t- I'm nothing against this. I mean, I, and, and I really like also, you know, all kinds of lectures, cheesy, non-cheesy, whatever. It's just that Adorno uh, would probably not see these anymore as, you know, keeping a distance to the main system. There's nothing in Malevich or Beckett or Schoenberg or, or other other uh, uh, names that he mentioned or works that mentioned that would really create a negation towards what we do in our everyday life and how we consume. It's totally consumable. you find it on posters and, and calendars and stuff. So it could really be that he would find the abstraction somewhere else. Maybe even in uh, popular culture. You know, at the time it was not very developed. When he talks about jazz, it's mostly schlager music. And when he, you know, when he talks about TV, early TV, you know, they, they, it wasn't Twin Peaks, the early TV. I'm not saying I don't have liked our our TV series, The Wire or, or Twin Peaks, but but definitely TV then was something we wouldn't appreciate probably probably very much. But he would probably not seek for abstraction. I don't think he would think that makes a big difference anymore to the main system where we are. But would he think that it's still the time of negative, uh, of a negative dialectical system? That, that That's that's a big question. If he would think like that, what would he then think uh, creates an opposition to that or some kind of a pure opposition to in that respect?
0: Yeah. Um, I suppose I should revisit because what I said earlier was something about that these kind of abstract works explode a false reality and I, and I kind of asked what he would be getting towards you know what we're we then yeah. supposed to get from that and I should kind of clarify but I've kind of said this before in quite a few talks but um, he wanted to kind of explode the false distinction between subject and object so yeah. whilst we're lost in this abstraction we lose the the false kind of distinction between ourselves and the outside world between ourselves and nature and um, he really feels that you only you only lose that boundary temporarily and then you're thrown back into yourself so you're you're getting lost in an artwork like a painting or more likely a piece of classical music for a, for adorno or a kind of new, new uh, experimental classical music and and you get lost and it's not so much of being lost because when, when you're being lost you can't really relate to reality as we normally understand it no. So it's more for him than being thrown back into yourself and realizing that you were lost and, and kind of mourning that loss. And then you might then use that to try and build a better politics, for example. We mm. didn't really say how that would then happen. So there was a kind of a, a logic to it. But I think you're right that we can't assume he would find that in abstraction. Certainly those things, because he was really into yeah. abstraction being something that couldn't be understood and categorized in normal kind of false rationalist terms so the whole point about uh, new abstract art for him is that he hasn't yet been categorized because we haven't yet understood it but if you look at beckett now or the other examples he gives it's now you know so far categorized and packaged that they can't have that effect so i'm not sure what what would have that effect you see i think you'd have to be dealing more with with internet forms because that's what we're looking at and what that does to our heads and so whether that can unravel things um and I don't really know. Well,
1: that's a good question. I, um, it might in the end be that, uh, you know, Adorno and Benjamin are kind of, in, you know, it's, it's from different, kind of opposite, opposite in their way of thinking. And, and I think there's a great introduction to Noel Carroll's of philosophy of mass art. I know you've read it from 98, where he's going through the whole history of people who are apocalyptic and somehow negative about mass culture, find different interpretations of why it's, why it's dangerous or why it's, why it's, represents a bad society or dangerous society. And then they have also this long line of people who are very positive. Benjamin is not the first, you know, there are many people, Gilbert Sells, uh, older thinkers who were, who were into thinking that media could maybe be a revolutionary thing. And, and these two lines have been going, you know, <laughs> a bit opposed to each other since the 20s or, or maybe even earlier uh, to our day. And maybe Adorno would still be on the same line, this is a good question, would he? And Benjamin would still be maybe on the same line. We can guess that, because it might also be about uh, their character in some sense. Some people are often very dystopic and, and negative and critical, overtly critical, so it's cynical maybe in, in the you know the modern version of the term from, from Weimar Republic, like 19th century, not cynical in the way the old Greeks were, right? And, uh, and in this sense, I don't know what Adorno would actually now be negative about or what he would see as dangerous, because I often don't see very, as very dangerous many of the things that in our circles, in Marxist circles or post-Marxist, whatever, I'm actually a social democrat more. But but we, we, you know, many people are all the time seeing uh, dangers everywhere and saying that this will lead to fascism. More, I'm, I'm not often buying that. If I really think some some cultural form will lead to fascism, I would immediately fight it and not just with some memes. I would probably have to you know do something else about it. But it's possible that they would be on the same. moment. Sabine Wilke has a great article about Benjamin and Adorno, where she says that. Adorno's problem, personal problem, his character was that he couldn't understand the meaning of laughter, and Benjamin understood laughter very well. So, so this might be even this might even be about psychological differences in human beings. Some of us are less lacking some components, and some other some others have them.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's, that, that's hard to say. I mean, Benjamin would appear less melancholic, and then he took his life, but then he was fleeing. Um, While well, he was fleeing what would then be Nazi ruled France. And he thought he wouldn't make, he wouldn't, he wouldn't make it through Spain now to Portugal onto America because that route had been kind of closed down. And he, no one knows why he then actually took his life. But the feeling is that he, he would have maybe been captured anyway, or yeah. he maybe would have slowed, slowed down his friend's escape or impeded his friend's escape or, or, or what have you. So I don't know if you can, we can class that as a suicide in the normal depressive sense. Um, I don't know. We don't really know what was, what he was thinking. Um, and Adorno kind of fell out of his students, and his health deteriorated. But we don't know how closely that's linked his the deterioration of his health or his heart attack when he was out walking the same summer. He argued with his students, so I don't know how relevant that is. But for sure, yeah, for sure, Benjamin seems not. I don't necessarily happier, but more like he sees some mystical redemption, um, and Adorno doesn't really seem to see any kind of redemption. Um, but one thing I do want to visit is they were both children of wealthy bourgeois parents. Yeah. Um, I think Adorno's dad was in the wine trade. Uh, his mum was an aristocrat from Sardinia in Italy. Um, Benjamin's parents weren't they in the cloth trade, textiles? Um, in any case, they they had some. They, they produced something as manufacturers, I think they had money and then later on they didn't uh benjamin had trouble getting money from his family in the 40s of course when wealthy jews had their kind of ability to produce wealth impeded um maybe i don't know i guess they had wealth taken from them um under nazi rule um but he was from a bourgeois background so they're both bourgeois basically and a lot is talked about um their elitism uh i don't know he's openly kind of anti a lot of um kind of should we say lower culture culture industry things Benjamin just seems to focus very much on kind of bourgeois interests and hobbies and objects um, but of the two, Benjamin seems more um, willing to kind of delve into maybe non-bourgeois pursuits in our conversations before you said well he tried out hash and that wasn't something people were doing much who you know from Adorno's crowd from their milieu, milieu how can you say, their, anyway right. they're their bourgeois crowd um, I mean Benjamin seems to be a kind of an imminent philosopher in a sense when I say imminent, so I mean like actually doing the stuff getting involved tangibly with the stuff so I used to go and walk around uh, the arcades of Paris um, when he was exploring flaneurism which was a a, a kind of trend of the previous century where middle class people would just kind of like walk around aimlessly um, in elegant dress we can talk about maybe why they did that in a minute um, but Benjamin seemed to kind of ape this behaviour. that he, would, he, he also walked around the arcades in this kind of aimless way. He was actually trying to kind of understand the objects, the bourgeois objects on sale in the arcades and the structures, because the arcades were actually made in the previous century during this kind of period of flaneurism. And he thought by kind of putting the objects together in his mind, by building constellations of these objects, he could better understand the history of capitalism that led to these objects you know, and their kind of relation with the architecture they were housed in. Um, So I kind of already said why he did it. Um, But, you know, what do you make of this kind of bourgeois uh, relation? You know, because I think even if if, if Benjamin was smoking hash and then wandering around the arcades kind of aimlessly, you know, that's still kind of bourgeois, even if it has some kind of stated purpose. What do you make of their kind of bourgeoisness? Does this mean we can't trust them? We can't use them for working class politics
1: yeah that's that's a good question but um i think we already talked a bit about that earlier and i think it's interesting that I, i suppose you neither would think that it's a problem if somebody has money or if somebody has a bourgeois background in the end uh in itself but i think this is something that i would think that that um in the end uh it made it impossible for them to do the cultural analysis they wanted to do. I don't see this as a. this as a problem with Marx and Engels, especially, well, I, I'm not much into Marx. For example, looking at Engels, the stuff he writes about is kind of clear. Uh, he studies society and its structures, but these are cultural issues that the Frankfurt School brings in, you know, which is kind of a lacking in Engels and Marx. There is something, but not much. Maybe Marx in itself could be called, you know, he has this kind of sensory way of thinking of workers and their life, and this is something that, for example, Somi Gandesha, I think, has, and and Jonathan Hartle have, have claimed to be Marx, Marx the esthetician. It's actually his theory of work but but uh but i would say that uh culturally they didn't have experience outside of their own uh and this i would call again I'm, I'm talking about this like western pretty central european it goes from london to florence and then to vienna this area they pretty much share the same culture in the upper class they didn't have experience outside of that and this i find interesting know says clearly that it's sad because he believes in this Modern art thing. I think people can live without that very well. And there's a lot of different, you know, different cultural possibilities that you can choose from. But he thinks it's sad that for some people it's not possible to enter the world of this art. And he says it clearly, you know, because of because of the system, economical system, socioeconomical system, some people are left out from the real thing. This is how he thinks about it. He doesn't say the real thing, of course. But then Benjamin, on the other hand, starts exploring all these issues with film and smokes hash and walks around and takes a look at different street theaters and whatever. Uh, And tries to explain it. But in Benjamin's case, I think, I find it interesting that in the end, he is not often able to understand them. He's, for example, thinking that in film, uh, of course, montage and, you know, brings some shock elements and he talks about Tivoli, you know, it's a a very, it's a very somatic theory also. Uh, In some of his writings, he writes that. People work in factories and they go to movies to get shocked and then they go to Tivoli to get mashed up again a bit. And, and, and the whole new lifestyle is like this. It's very somatic and it's very aggressive. And, and you get these shocks that you can't in the end digest. But the interesting thing is that uh, I think Benjamin, for Benjamin, this culture is new. He thinks it's because of technology. And of course, in some sense, you didn't have montage, you didn't have film before. Maybe it really is a thing of uh, maybe 10s and tenties and whatever when it came, but in the end, I think working class arts, I would call them maybe working class arts here, I can, you know, I'm sure what that could mean, but working class culture or the culture of the poor has probably been, was probably much more based on uh, shock elements and, and, and uh, 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 mashing things up than the bourgeois culture of the 19th century where you were sitting in some salon and watching opera or, or uh, listening to opera or something else. So I think they're kind of mixing the thing that they are illiterate for non hybro culture, literate, in literate for non-rich uh, people's culture. And at the same time, they think all that all that I see in the media is something that the media brought. But I think the media often continues old traditions. You know, there was street theater in Naples. And then when you look at Toto or somebody else who is was doing comics uh, on stage in some film, he's actually repeating old old traditions and I think this happened in many ways in modern popular culture. It continued a tradition that the bourgeois suddenly met often for the first time. But I'm not sure I, I, it's just a speculation. I don't know what you think about that.
0: But when you say, sorry, Tivoli, I missed it. I didn't I don't know the reference. Oh, sorry, like a, amusement, park,
1: amusement parks. or uh, It's actually in, in one, Benjamin, Texas, Tivoli, but that's kind of a, you know, not to be mixed. Only well, with
0: Tivoli that. is in Italy. Amusement
1: it? park. You know, you know, the the yeah, old yeah. Tivoli. Uh, but then, for okay. example, in Copenhagen, you had Tivoli and it was kind of a word that was... Oh, amusement. okay,
0: okay. Because I know a
1: Amusement place parks place. where you take a walk, but let's say amusement parks.
0: Okay. I mean, I think, yeah, there's an issue here. I suppose that the question is, but it's a question actually that Adorno asked Benjamin because Adorno funded Benjamin's arcades project. Um So Benjamin basically in the late 1920s began this massive, well, what ends up being a massive book, which was never finished, um, which would basically be a kind of documentation of, of Paris and its arcades and of modernism as such and its kind of kind of lineage in earlier forms of modernism and capitalism. So he's basically trying to understand capitalism through the arcades, through Paris, through people who wrote about Paris previously. Um, and it's a kind of long rambling book, mostly of notes now. I mean, it's very interesting to look yeah. at it to see what he was thinking. Um but yeah, it was funded by, by the Institute for Social Research. So, and that was run by um, Horkheimer. Basically, Horkheimer and Adorno were supervising Benjamin. And they were basically giving him this stipend, which is most of what he was getting at that period, when he was like poor in Paris in his last years. And they, said, they sent these letters to him. Um, individually saying that we're worried about your research because it's not materialist enough because you're looking too much. It kind of sounds strange actually because they said it's not materialist enough because you're looking too much at objects, which is counterintuitive. But they meant you know, you're looking at objects in the arcade, you're looking at things that people are buying and selling, you're looking at structures of the arcades and what have you, but you're not looking, and also he's looking at theories by the he says Fourier and Marx and people in there, but you're not looking at the materialist structure underlying society, the social class structure. And mm. um, that's the thing actually, I think Adorno says that to Benjamin quite harshly. And you can see it in the letters, the correspondence between Benjamin and, and Adorno, which you can buy, or you can find it online somewhere. Um, he says this, and I think it upsets Benjamin, Um, but I'm really sure when he says that, he's talking really about himself and the Institute for Social Research as such. The reason that him and Horkheimer are so harsh because it's actually a criticism that they have to face themselves
1: yes, yes, all the, the time. Because none of yeah. them really
0: know, none of them really know of oh, the Frankfurt School, really know what it's like to be working class. Um, and, yeah, I think when we look at them now, we're thinking about, like, instructions for how to, um, I mean, depends. The audience here is quite broad. So, like, either make, making revolution or just um, making the the social democrat the center, the left center stronger. And actually in some countries, you just need to get the left center back into power. But you're looking at, at kind of advice on how to do that. They don't seem adequate for many people because they're not dealing at all with, um, you know, with with materialist social realities. Um, and I just wonder, I wonder actually, if there's so much on our curriculum in universities in different countries because they're not dealing with that kind of thing. So there is this kind of contradiction because you could say, Um, they're not left enough because they're dealing with more with art and culture than with social structures but you could say well they they only exist because they were dealing with those things they only got the money to exist they only kind of went undetected and you have an FBI hat on today but you know there's often this thing of um, their kind of strange relationship with the CIA and perhaps Marcuse was in a kind of precursor to the CIA or had some kind of lowly role Adorno was on CIA files but you know they they got to do their stuff in any case and maybe that's partly because they weren't threatening Um, but what is it to be a successful leftist is it the one who manages to do all their work unhindered or is it the one that gets put in prison or or doesn't get published (laughs) ever I don't know but I mean go on.
1: Oh, it's a good or, question. I was thinking yeah, this whole yeah, idea yeah. that they start to focus on culture is kind of weird. But do you think yeah. they were materialist in the beginning, like the 20s, and, and then they left it somehow? Mm, I think they wanted I, to have I, a I, change. Yeah,
0: so I, don't I don't know the history of this Institute for Social Research that well, but I think there was a slight change, if we understood correctly, when Horkheimer came in. Um, and I think that but I think they were always aware that they had to veer away from like Marxist Leninism um because it was a private institute um so yeah i mean i suppose it depends what we really want them to do but you know i mean they're not the people who are going to tell us how to make revolutions they're doing something no. a little bit different
1: but are they really saying that i mean i don't know and not benjamin I, I, for benjamin it's kind of tricky to say to say what he actually says about revolution i think but, ben, but if you look at Adorno, he's, he's kind of implying that change is impossible and revolution is impossible. Although later he says he was exaggerating a bit to wake people up. Don't
0: you think so? I mean, I think there's, there's partly... Yeah, for, for Adorno, is partly this kind of... Um, I mean, see, Benjamin didn't have to deal with with the whole of World War Two happening and then finding out what really happened in terms of mm. the Holocaust. Mm. And then, I mean, of course, you could say Benjamin didn't lose he didn't lose Benjamin. i mean adorno lost benjamin benjamin just died so you know this is there's this kind of situation where i think adorno is dealing with the horror of world war ii and trying to avoid that happening again oh. and he really says to his students look i'm not convinced you won't repeat that kind of horror and he's talking about not just nazi germany but also soviet russia because by that oh. time in the late 60s when he was arguing with his students it was clear what happened in 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 soviet russia under Stalin to act to western academics um I mean it's clear to Western academics what happened. So I think he genuinely did want to avoid a kind of repeat of, of the same kind of horrors under totalitarianism. Um I, I think another thing is you know what what is a bourgeois person supposed to do? Um I mean I don't know because I don't really consider myself particularly bourgeois but of course I have lots of bourgeois interests. But um I you know I think the bourgeois class is in this funny position because, you know, they almost have an interest in maintaining stasis. So, you know, does it make sense to somebody who has a kind of steady income and background inheritance to then go and risk it all um, okay. being revolutionary? And, you know, it might make more sense to them to to, to try and maintain stasis through kind of flaneurism, through kind of a, a more relaxed kind of wandering about a meandering attitude towards culture and it's kind of what you see with benjamin and adorno i think
1: yeah.
0: um, i don't know do, can you want to say that these these people are not politically engaged because they're not like you know getting up close to people's faces and saying fuck you start revolution you know that that's that's not to make any sense to 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 <laughs> to, to, to tenure professor <laughs> or you no know, or what have you yeah. um, so i mean I'm in two minds about that because I think it's very easy to be very antagonistic towards um, the bourgeois class That's but true. everyone has kind of a role and it's all material you know I mean this is this is a material reality that Dorna and Benjamin were, were, were living with and I think it's it's not very helpful to question their materiality you know if you're not from that background with parents who run in, oh. you know in the industry um, I think we have to be a little bit more Nuanced and a bit more mature, so I don't really blame them for you know for that kind of bourgeois lifestyle ultimately. I mean they were pushing the boundaries as as middle class people shall we say
1: well, they tried, but they couldn't see much beyond their own uh matrix bourgeois matrix of culture, which I think is interesting, but also I think it's uh um, well i'm I'm happy if people want to work for change um uh, if they're bourgeois, rich, whatever, it's it's. Uh, I think it's interesting, but I think often when you talk about revolution, then people don't want to have change. It's whole Marxist idea of a uh, messianic revolution coming and changing everything, uh, without any experimental, small, you know, <laughs> grassroots work made or or just like it's it's kind of a messianic waiting. And 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 I think there are two types. There are these people who like to go on the streets and throw stuff. This kind of bourgeois who like to go and uh, uh, throw. Uh, for example uh stones on on workers uh, like police uh mainly you know in Finland, you know the police is not it's, it's not perfect but uh, uh you know it's maybe not something that i would throw stones on i think in some countries you can stone throw the stones maybe on the police but i think it's also bourgeois hobby to to kind of show off and and, and a revolution is something you you experience you know it's 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 a, it's a form of Cultural industry for the intellectuals, you know, you, you reproduce all those models of being antagonistic and then there are people actually who are like, uh, I don't know, you know, they're theoretically uh, just antagonistic, totally antagonistic and nihilist and, and, and cynical. But I think often real change is made piece by piece by doing small things and, 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 and I'm just thinking like, for example, you know, the Nordic countries is, is not perfect. It's, it has a lot of problems and you li- you live in, you live here as well so you know the system. But, but anyway, I mean, we didn't achieve this with revolution or by throwing stones. Uh, and if you look at many countries where they, you know, you know, like France, like it's really been hip. Once in a while, it's hip that the bourgeois goes to the streets and throws stones on workers and, 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 and paints graffiti on the wall. But have they really achieved something with that? And, and I'm not saying they should achieve something like a very clear impact always. I mean, it's also, you, you create new thinking and, and so on. But when you look at America and France of the 60s, and then you look at them now, Uh, I don't think it really produced anything interesting in the end. If they had an impact, it was just for a very short period. And I actually think when people from the bourgeois want to talk about revolution, I'm a bit on my toes. What does that person want? Does the person want to have a bit of a change and slowly work for something better? Or is it kind of a show-off? Or is it just theoretical revolutionary thinking? Is it too much said?
0: No, 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 it's good. I'm just thinking... um... I mean, it raises a lot of other issues. I mean, part of the issue is not communicating with the the working class. I mean, the class boundaries yeah. now are a little bit confused, anyway. But let's you know, still use those terms. Um I mean, the, the, when you talk about the um, '60s movements, I think they were largely middle class. They were student led, yeah. and, and actually, the French. What happened is that the workers kind of got scared and didn't want to have their factories occupied. They were kind of worried about. The destruction of their own livelihoods um so that is an issue and that, that's that's always really the problem it's how do we speak to the workers and you know i mean of course we're all working but in terms of who goes and speaks to the supermarket workers um nurses and things no one really wants to um you know it, it's not easy because you're putting yourself out there in a position of speaking to people who don't maybe understand the terms you're using or you know, one feels uncomfortable going into cultures that aren't their own. So I think um it has to be said that a lot of the time there aren't real efforts to speak to different groups of people, you know, because people actually yeah, I think even even if you look at left parties like um Labour, um Democrats, Vazemisto, in um and the Social Democrats in Finland. Um, I mean how much do they how much are people quite happy talking amongst themselves about these changes that need to be done But you know in quite a relaxed way without then going taking the extra measure to go and speak to The Afghanis who are coming into Finland or maybe yeah. they need to speak to professionals right now not to us But you know to speak to you know to speak to the Iraqis who are here the Somalians Um I think the 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 key maybe is 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 breaking down that barrier, but I think the thing is, there it's all about organisation in terms of putting the right people in the right roles. So it's not like you and me should now go okay. and speak to some Iraqis. Uh, I mean, of course, we can as well. But what I mean is, it's not it's not our role to speak to people who who may be deprived. We need to we need to find the we need to find the people who are the podcasters, the people who are the writers, and you need to be, you know doesn't excuse doesn't say you know it doesn't need to say you're a writer you don't have to go and speak to these people. What I mean is you need to coordinate everyone together um to make this happen somehow and it's not doesn't really happen because people they get together, they have like some conference, some party, whatever, and they chat a bit and they feel good. Same in art exhibitions, they go and they look at some work about immigrants, and that's kind of enough. And then it it, it kind of dissipates the the urge to meet these people. Yeah. So I mean that's a huge thing that needs addressing over time, really.
1: But I think the four groups you talked about actually have their own podcasts and they have their own discussions like we're doing now. But the interesting thing is that there's not much connection even on the intellectual side be- between different groups. And then we're thinking, I'm sure if you're relating to this, but I, I think it's uh, it's interesting with the Frankfurt School does it, as it has no contact to nearly anything. It's just happening inside of their bubble, you know. And... Uh, if you looked at Engels, angles, I mean, he went there and he tried to solve the problems and understand them and make a very practical analysis, which was not just theoretical, which would maybe lead to something also like small issues practically today. And uh, I find it fascinating that uh, and like, the intellectually fascinating, but I'm kind of critical about it. Like, I think you were referring to this way that these parties don't actually come and talk with people. And maybe I would say they don't listen to people. They should listen to a guy who works in a factory and not just, you know, uh, Mark them if they use the wrong concepts, which is a weird form of Marxist nominalism these days. That people do that, you know, just bit of wrong concepts and you're out. They should go to factories. They should listen to people from the groups you were talking about, for example, and they should be out on the streets. and I'm not saying I, I would like to have. It, it's not that simple that I would like to have series or Podemos here, but 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 anyway, I think there's a lack of a practical engagement and 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 and, and interest to listen to different thought groups. And this is maybe in the end. thing that there are so many bourgeois people in the left that that they they just often like try to think that they they can speak for others uh they're privileged and um
0: yeah well that that is certainly a problem yeah i mean i think yeah that is going into like other territories but i mean it's also a little bit the problem with the with the podcasting community which is a bit like the academic community that we can talk but do we really get out there you know um but 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 everybody. I mean, you can only know yourself what you do. I can only know what I do. But I think also, you know, there needs to be something a, a bit more of like when we're having talks like this, which you don't do, I guess, very often. But I do quite a lot. Is that maybe encourage the listeners, like you know, maybe go and join your yeah, local yeah. Vazemisto yeah. group. Maybe go and join your local Black Lives Matter in you know, depending on the where, where you're from or you know whether there is a local group. Um, but getting people out there. But I think we have to move on a little bit from the tactics to a bit bit back to culture. You had a book out um, last year called On the Philosophy of Central European Art, where you talk about high and low culture and the antagonisms between them. And you actually talk about how this high and low distinction goes back at least to this philosopher, uh, I think it's Sung Yu, this Chinese philosopher. And I think you said 300 BC. Um, You talk about how high and low is something that comes into Indian um, philosophy. Maybe you can tell me more about that, actually. Um, Anyway, it's prevalent in many cultures. It's particularly prevalent in the West. It's like a major distinction which kind of characterizes how we talk about culture and think about it. Um, But you say we need to maybe bring in a kind of third option or actually a fourth option really because there's also this middle brow so there's high brow low brow middle brow and then you say we need to bring in a no brow firstly can you kind of identify what the real problem is with this high and low and then why you would want a no brow
1: option just for the listeners i think like high brow would mean like the uh so-called high culture stuff opera and whatever certain literary genres and then low brow would be like basic entertainment but middle brow is it's the stuff that is kind of imitating the the, the high culture, and it's more for statues and bourgeois uh, experience. But uh, yeah. I don't th- I don't actually think the the the, the idea of highbrow originally in the ethnic context. I'm getting back to that triangle again in the center of Europe. It, it's not problematic in the original context necessarily, because you know at, at one point people didn't have any idea of what what people you know people in the upper class or or who had, had certain cultural Forms that we are still talking about as hybrid, they don't have any idea of what the poor people were doing, you know. And, and, and it, it's actually, when culture was more democratic, suddenly 17, uh, you know, 18th, there's it, it, a beginning in the 17th century also that people start to discuss this, but mainly 19th century. And I think eight, 1830s, 40s, 50s is the time when people start to really make the distinction. Uh, they, the, the different cultures meet on the street, there are platforms where they meet, and they realize there are different cultural formations. And then some people want to put a certain form of culture on a pedestal and call it uh, high. And I think it's genuine, mainly uh, that, you know, people were thinking that, that poetry is more important than whatever street theater. And, and, and I, We don't have to agree with it, but I, I, but I think they really wanted to, to save something. You always want to make hierarchies, you know? I think, I think there are better thinkers and worse thinkers, and there are better films and worse films. And maybe I don't have this idea that I have to classify them and support the thought, and build some kind of a metaphysics around it, but it's kind of typical that people want to do that. But what I'm interested in is the hybrid uh, this hybrow thing—is that, like I said, I think it's always ethnic. You don't think hybrow is uh, Japanese uh, Shunga, or you don't think hybrow is uh, uh, Indian uh, classical uh, theater. Maybe somebody could say they're a bit like Indian hybrow, or this is a bit like Japanese hybrid, But hybrid really means this ethnic. Thing from Western Central Europe, a certain cultural formation when they decided that there are seven fine arts and you created this system and you started to cherish certain forms of experiences like this, you know, this kind of disinterested uh, experience of ruins or whatever paintings. But they have always been no bro people too. And, and, and this is why I want to discuss the topic. It's, it's, a, it's a long tradition that even if already in Nero's times in Rome, they were mocking people. Uh, the upper class was that was educated was mocking people that didn't have taste and they had only the money, you know. And even if you have all this tradition coming up to our days, when some uh, people who are into highbrow and a bit of camp are laughing about uh, what the working class, what kind of schlagers the working class listens to, there have always been people who are out from the distinction. This is a distinction for a small group of people. I don't think somebody who was just working in a factory. Uh, 50 years ago or or, or who was working uh, in the forest 200 years ago had any idea of cultural hierarchies. They lived a constant no-bro. They were just seeing cultural things and and sometimes they noticed that people who had a power had something different but, but you know, it, it, certain, it, certain groups of people on the lower strata in the society didn't have high and low. And another thing is that even if you were educated and even if you were bourgeois, not just middle or upper class, you might still have thought that, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, I like street theater or I like I like feature films, and I also like Beckett. Uh, uh, So, 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 in many ways, you have always had people who are out from this, and we tend to think that the modern period uh, meant that everybody, kind of everybody, had high and low. You know, like, 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 it would have been a thing for everyone. But it's actually, I I don't, I don't know how small the group of people has been, but I think at some point it has maybe been ten percent who have understood the whole issue. And that's why I want to bring in the no-bro thing. It's 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 a long tradition of people who don't care and who don't share that way of classifying and uh, putting things into polarities. But also, it's about people who sometimes never heard about it. Uh, so so this is what I kind of wanted to accentuate there. But also the thing that high bro is an ethnic thing. And and when people are thinking, why why is high bro always white and why is it always European? Well, it's, it's really an ethnic concept.
0: Yeah, it seems to me that... Um you're saying then that it kind of maintains hierarchies on all fronts. It maintains uh, class hierarchies, but it maintains yeah. ethnic or racial hierarchies and national hierarchies as well.
1: Definitely. Definitely. I mean, Even the word highbrow, you know, it's, it's from race theory. It, it, it's You have highbrow, you're so kind of upper, upper race. Okay. Uh, oh, wow. Which is complicated. Yeah. But most people think today, oh, like, you're black, brown, white. It was not like that. It was very complicated. Nineteenth-century race theories were very complicated. For example, uh, de Gobineau's classical from 1850s talks about like uh, Germans and people from India and people from Persia as being like a high race, and then Finns are a low race. So the history is much more complicated than we can now understand. So often in those theories you had like achievements in art and then certain looks that that you know they were thinking in mid-19th century were kind of a high-race look So 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 it's such a messy history, uh, as we also know from the Nazis and all that, but still it's been connected to these cultural things.
0: hmm Um okay, but a lowbrow, sorry, then a no-brow is just not not appreciating the distinction, but that can be just because somebody isn't schooled in the distinction. So somebody can just say, you know, think, oh, you know, I quite like Beethoven. I quite like, I don't know, whatever, whatever else exists, um, Kanye West or something. Um, but it just be because they've, you know, maybe, maybe they're young and they're just kind of mixing stuff up and they like, you know, they they don't know they're not supposed to like both of these things, maybe. But is there any kind of kind of move to make no brow a thing in general? Like, how would no brow become the standard?
1: Well, I think nobra will be increasing as as people will realize increasingly that Hybro actually is a totally European ethnic thing, and even if we like to expand it, it's kind of like why take an old dirty concept? Uh, I mean, you can have you can have interesting forms of culture everywhere and different, maybe different quality levels or whatever you want to choose, but the whole concept is kind of crazy. Why keep up with that? I'm I'm not a I'm not a German uh, upper class person from the 18th century or 19th century. You know, for me it's kind of weird that why should I adopt the whole concept? But also, also the whole thing. Of course, I mean, uh, maybe in some sense we are getting rid of it. You know, Johnny Vattem has written in an interesting way that that even people he he doesn't actually differentiate between the people who have it and the people who don't have this way of thinking actively, but he's saying that we are kind of getting uh, slowly better and feeling more well after a long disease that we call modernity. So in, during modernity, strong classifications and hierarchies took over at least the educated people. And, and now we're slowly getting rid of that, but it's, it's still the only thing we have. So many people kind of still maybe feel that there is some kind of high or low and better and worse or something like with this metaphysics of high and low. And this is an interesting way to put it. I mean, Maybe that's true, but mostly people in arts, we don't much think about that. I think this is bourgeois stuff. Uh, people in arts tend to talk about whatever, you know, uh, uh, TV programs or, or it's an interesting, you know, it, it's a bit like uh, I was traveling to some biennial, we'll go into a museum and there was this door that made a weird noise. So my friend who's a sound artist started to listen to the door. This is how it goes in the arts and you're not necessarily doing hierarchies. It's just interesting in different issues in culture. But I think this is the bourgeois that has been keeping up with this high and low and they've been appropriating art, you could say. Actually, Pierre Bourdieu's work is about that. People say he wrote about the, you know about art in his distinction from 1986, but in the end, I think he wrote about the way the bourgeois is appropriating the art scene. I'm not saying the art scene wouldn't have many bourgeois tendencies too, you know. But 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 still, in a certain sense, I, I think these things don't matter when you are there.
0: Yeah, but isn't but it, isn't it partly um, an issue of people? You know the, 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 they want this kind of hierarchy around an art form and that, that hierarchy it, it doesn't just like you know create this social um kind of stratification so you know if you're going to an art museum exhibition opening you're seeing certain people who are fairly wealthy and at a certain point they at a certain point they would have been certain people who are fairly wealthy and mostly upper bourgeois to aristocrat and perhaps all white in European countries. Um, It's not just that that, that you would then expect to to mix in certain circles and you might find your future partner who would also be an aristocrat and what have you. Um, Is it not adding to the aesthetic experience for them maybe, that there's a whole thing around opera where there's the opera, there's the people on stage and they've all been schooled in opera and they would have been from middle-class, upper-class backgrounds. But then the whole audience is also from that background does that not add yeah. some I mean for them that's adding something because yeah, i think sure that they're funny. going to find it yeah. challenging if the, yeah. if the audience yeah. suddenly is a mix of people who aren't all wearing suit jackets from different races that's going to probably disturb some people
1: so you're talking about well, a kind of a bourgeois everyday experience like an aesthetic everyday experience basically.
0: yeah it's there's a nice
1: there's an, as, there's yeah. an aesthetic I'm sure That'd be probably beautiful, too, I'm sure. I've never been in that. Well, I'm not sure that it's necessarily... a.
0: Not sure that that's a good thing. I'm not condoning that an aesthetic. Oh, yeah. uh, but, but I mean, okay, it, it, I don't think that many people are really thinking literally that we should only have white people in the audience. But the uniformity of, of people, of, of the audience, probably does add something for some people. They're going to feel challenged if more and more people come in, partly because they don't feel special. And there's this specialness of the audience, of the public adds to the kind of specialness, the aura, well, it's probably use, misusing the word aura, but, you know, adds to this, um, you know, something being particular about the art form. Um, and that's why people get upset, perhaps. Because if you think about, it's happened with post-impressionism, yeah. that there are the famous accounts of people um, really laughing or crying or getting very angry when they first saw the post-impressionist shown in the Salon de refusé their Refusé exhibitions in Paris, but also the first times they were shown in London in, in 1910, there was an exhibition that famously people were having these crazy emotional reactions to these post-impressionist works of apples, of landscapes, you know, I say apples, but I mean still lives. Um, and the thing is that, you know, that they were possibly having these reactions because the social structure had been challenged. They weren't so, they weren't laughing hilariously which is a strange reaction in front of an artwork because somebody had painted these crude kind of apples and pears, you know, that that were kind of almost abstract moving towards later abstraction in their roughness. They were kind of laughing because they were shocked because the social structure was big upended. Um, And the thing there is where the working class might understand a post impressionist painting better than the middle class because the thing is the middle class the whole thing with painting was you can see greek myth references you can see references to christianity you see the guy holding the keys is saint peter for example you need some education Um, but when it becomes all about feeling about expressing emotions through form where the middle class have been taught to suppress their feeling this might actually end up appealing even more to the servants of the middle class than to the people who traditionally would buy the artworks so I think this is what I mean, is that there's a, there's a thing of like maintaining a social structure through, through this kind of high art and low art distinction. Um,
1: and you know, Benjamin would have thought of that as a shock. You know, he was talking a lot about the uh, shock effects of the avant-garde, for example. Uh, that was kind of the same thing as, as amusement parks. And, and he was doing the same work and changing the experience. Which yeah, I and mean, one thing he kind of thinks we're all in the same experience. You know, he doesn't, uh, I, for me, it's kind of weird to think that we would have a cultural form that would, uh, you know, different cultural forms that would change our shared ex- aesthetic experience. I mean, wh- how, how we experience things. You know, many things change. Maybe people are watching a painting for an hour in the 19th century. And in Benjamin's times, they maybe watched a couple of minutes. And now, I don't know, 20 seconds. Uh, culture is changing, but also it's, it's a different change, I think, for different fall groups. And this is something that is lacking in the Frankfurt School analysis. And nobody has really worked on this. I think that that like, for what Benjamin is talking about of changing the aura and everything, for example, is something that must have been different from the people who just went to amusement parks and worked in the factory and different from people who went to see the paintings. But I definitely think those shocks well, are yeah. interesting that you gain there.
0: Yeah, it's true. When Benjamin's, when Benjamin's talking about aura, I only really understand it from the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, his essay from the mid-1930s, though he did talk about it previously in other essays but basically what he's saying for the viewers is he talks about the artwork <coughs> excuse me having something kind of special that goes in excess of itself as an object so you know when you look at a normal object it's just a bottle it's just a laptop or whatever um it has a functionality but an artwork has this kind of something special that that benjamin says is because of maybe where it's because of it being unique it's because of who owns it it's because of where it's shown but when you you've got the situation in in the late 1800s to you know through the 1900s where you've got artworks being reproduced on mass so people could own the print or have the print on a biscuit tin so people you know people have seen the Mona Lisa everyone's seen the Mona Lisa most people haven't seen the Mona Lisa like in situ but actually if you now go and see the Mona Lisa in situ you can't really see it you know properly no, because great. there's so many people seeing it Um but obviously, for the people who just have always just seen the Mona Lisa, this question of the aura being lost, of this its kind of specialness being lost, maybe isn't there so much. Um but um
1: a loss for who this I mean that's
0: interesting. interesting.
1: Okay. Lost for who, well, who, was, sure, who yeah, they, it's kind of coming for? off was, coming off what you were saying, it's like
0: exactly it was lost. I mean, Benjamin kind of says that it's lost but then says that something's been gained in man- in mechanical reproduction, that many people can kind of see more stuff and be educated, but then he sees this risk coming in, um, in people kind of seeing many, many more images and then wanting more stuff. They want the wealth they see in the images. And then the Nazis come in and they start diverting people's attention from the kind of wealth, the property they want through Nazi parades, through this okay. promise of living space in the East and war and whatever and scapegoating some racial groups. Um, so actually this brings us on to another point I was gonna ask you. Um, so you actually talk about in an essay called Political Concepts as Aesthetic Concepts. People, this is actually very important for the kind of audience we have actually. So Political Concepts as Aesthetic Concepts which is forthcoming from a collection of essays called Aesthetic Perspectives on Culture, Politics and Landscape coming out next year which you co-edited with some other people you'll probably be able to say their names in a minute um but um so you talk about people saying oh yeah I don't like these far leftists and they're maybe not saying they don't like the far leftists but they don't like the kind of the aesthetic of protests the dreadlocks maybe the way they dress I don't know exactly what your reference I don't remember the exact references you made now but You get this across politics, people kind of quite sure that they dislike certain uh, political um, persuasions, but they actually dislike maybe the physical postures and the dress codes and things. And actually, Benjamin spoke about the aestheticization of politics um, in that same essay, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. So can you just talk a little bit about that? I mean, what is the main risk you see there with people aestheticizing politics?
1: Well, I'm not sure if the risk is the thing I would be into thinking again. I'm not much into thinking of risks, maybe, always. It's, it's not that maybe that's not maybe the point, but definitely this is a Benjaminian article. And he talks about that, that, you know, politics become will become more aesthetic. And the main idea with the book that I edited with Elisabetta de Stefano and uh, Karsten Freiberg was that we always heard people saying, for example, that, you know, the presidential election uh, in the U.S. is just a big performative theater after something, but there was no analysis. Like, I mean, you, you know, people just kept saying these things. There's one great book by Crispin Sartwell, uh political aesthetics, where he goes into depth saying that political movements are in some sense aesthetic. And he goes into simple examples of punk rock, for example, and then the simple example, Nazis are a very simple example, of course. In mean, in some sense, it's 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 not something you have to explain a lot, but he was thinking that 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 there is always some sort of aesthetic thing keeping things together and and, and you know the symbols produced, and, and, and if you look at how politics functions, uh, for me it was interesting, I was running this gallery with my, two of my friends where we were working a lot with a, a homeless people who had a kind of base there, and we were doing things together with them, and uh, it was this old uh, activist kind of center or something, and once they were asking if we could do an exhibition about their history, so we went to the basement, and, and just seeing the whole line of, you know, flags and uh, 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 textiles with some text or whatever, Made me realize that there is, a, there is a really well-coded culture for demonstrations, for example, and that all politics actually has something like that. And, you know, different parties, people look different. Uh, the right wing might like uh, uh, um, suits and, and, and in certain left wing groups, you know, uh, different in certain years in certain countries in certain left wing groups, all males have beards. Or, or, you know, this is, it's weird that these symbols keep coming. And they're not simply aesthetic. It's something else too it's essential. But then when people talk about politics, I've noticed, and this is something that I got interested in, that they, not, they don't talk much about political decisions. I noticed because uh, I was, I, at one point I was following, for example, what people were voting for and what parties were voting for, that often people did not know what the party they uh, represented or voted for actually did in politics. It's interesting. Uh, like you had artists talking about their need to get the copyright money, but they're voting for a party that actually votes against copyright in the European Union. Uh, so, so, so it's it's complicated. I'm not saying which is right or what is wrong right and what is right, but just the whole idea that, that people don't often know it, but they work through these aesthetic ideas that I'm a part of that group and community. And then often when you say negative things, you say like those uh, bicycle communists or something, and then people are laughing about it. But it actually is a sort of a okay. lifestyle. But it's, it, the, you know, the so, bicycle
0: but bicycle communists? Can you explain that?
1: Well, it, it was kind of a, a, a populist right-wing guy who said that on TV. He talked about bicycle communists, and, and it's, it's absurd. But I, but I think everybody knows the type. It, it, maybe it was me. You know, I, I used to bike a lot, and I had maybe some uh, carrier with me or something. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and it's a whole alternative lifestyle how people look. And when some people say I hate activists, it's not about activism itself. If somebody would explain that, you know, there are many types of activists. Sometimes it has a lot of impact, it's not maybe always visible then, but then there's also this very visible performative side of it, you know, let's say that if you want to save a building, you can actually, you know, when they do the uh, plans for the next 10 years, you can easily have an impact on discussion. You can go into that and actually often, m- many cities, they will listen to you when you could like start a project on some old building you wanna save. But often the, the activist movement often starts when it's over, You know, when the decision, decisions are made 10 years ago and, now, is, now they're going to annihilate a building, and then some guys come to guys like me come to do vegetarian food and preparing bicycles and and playing punk music or something in a certain place. And it's a whole it's it's actually an aesthetic movement, and it it has no impact at that point anymore because all, all the deals have been made, everything's been fixed for ten years. And the, at the moment when 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 people who are not really into decision making and who don't understand how society functions come in, it's it's just a performance. And so now when somebody is saying that. They hate activism they could mean actually this type of thing that they see which i have nothing against like i could be a part of that i'd be many times part of that but just that when we talk about politics it's not pure political concepts but they i think they are loaded with aesthetic significance it's how people look and how they act and and, and and all that so there is a culture and aesthetic uh inside of concepts we use like populist right or you know, immediately you think of a certain way of acting and talking, and a certain forms so of party rallies or whatever.
0: Yeah, uh, but that's interesting. I think the populist right. Yeah. I don't really see much of um. Of a posture or act, I think you see when political parties in Finland do their campaigns, they all go out and they give out sausages. They give, they do barbecues for people and when the right do it they really do a barbecue like it's really dirty and they have some drinks going and stuff i mean the barbecue is dirty and they have some drinks going and you know it's a real thing like these these people obviously do barbecues but when the left go out and do barbecues it's kind of clean and it's a bit staged and they're not doing it with quite the same passion so um, I don't know because I mean yeah it's difficult to say because often the right is just I mean that's kind of quite, in a way I'm jealous of their of their barbecues when it comes to campaign <laughs> campaign time but only of the actual barbecue not of anything not of them yeah, or yeah, their yeah, I agree, I agree, slogans yeah. but but when it comes to other things like the anger and vitriol of the yeah. far right I mean it just can't be staged because it's just so ridiculous especially when you see around The anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers, all this stuff, which is very knee-jerk. They seem to be attracting a lot of people who are just very anti-authoritarian, but they've only just realised that they're being manipulated. They haven't already made the connection, you know. And uh, in terms of like how we're subjugated by the capitalist system, they 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 kind of ignored that, but they're suddenly very upset about masks and vaccinations and things. And you just think they can't be acting because it seems like such an emergence of anger. But then also their conspiracy theories, it just seems like the channeling of archetypes that, you know, if they were really rational, I don't think they could come up with some of the nonsense they come out with. But it seems much more to be in the devil worshipping Democrats that they're against, etc. You know, this kind of resurgence of this kind of um, satanic panic from the 80s in America, for example, Mm -hmm. Um, These kind of things seem much more guttural. So when you speak about um, acting out politics, Politics, I think it's
1: Aesthetics is not the same thing as
0: uh, uh, as acting, you know, performative
1: But of course it often is performative Uh, And I actually I believe that in some in some ways even the people who are into this far-right action Even they might be joking about if you read their blogs They seem to be very aware sometimes, you know, even a camp way about about people in their scene but but I, I think it's 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 they're often more well, aware. this is interesting yeah
0: i mean that, that's true i mean one one thing i've seen recently i don't remember the source but it makes a lot of sense is actually if you ask a lot of supporters of QAnon and other kind of conspiracies yeah. what they really think they don't really believe all of the conspiracy conspiracies they subscribe to so the conspiracies themselves are more of an organic story that grows up now online this is much easier, but this has been happening always. If you look at the kind of yeah. stories that um the the narratives that associated, were associated with Nazi the Nazi party in Germany, sorry, you had similar kind of accounts no. um around devil worship, around scapegoat scapegoating particular races and things. Um so it seems that together we collectively make these bizarre stories, but the actual individuals might not be as unreasonable. In themselves which makes sense but what your point about aesthetics is good it's not necessarily about acting but i, I would assume because yeah, right. i actually i kind of misinterpreted what you were saying or went along on my own thing but now you said it um i would i would say that there's more acting out from the middle class left i feel i agree I
1: mean, definitely more acting yeah. out yeah uh, that's interesting actually i think that's very performative but also uh, uh you know we're, we're talking for real here and we're really interested in this i totally forget where i am i'm and even who I am sometimes when we're chatting, but there's a certain aesthetic to this form format too, you know, those images yeah. and, and, and things that are re- in some sense, real, as you can say, can still have an aesthetic.
0: Well, that's true, the aesthetic grows up. I mean, to what degree it's cultivated, I don't know, but there are certain parameters that have been developed like in terms of online conversations like this. Yeah, and then on the left as well. Yeah, exactly. um, For sure, I mean, everybody does it, I suppose. This is a thing, yeah. Um, but I mean, is there a risk that some people are are not, I suppose you've already alluded to this, but people are not getting to their true aesthetic self, sorry, their true philosophical self or political self because they're distracted by the aesthetics.
1: Yeah, this is possible. I think, I think we often believe that we're talking about politics when we are talking at least partly about aesthetics. And that's interesting. And when people say these things about certain people from certain parties or certain groups. Uh, uh, I think it's hard to differentiate it. And in this sense, even if this is not what Crispin Sartwell is saying in his classical book, uh, he's more talking about the thing that it's hard to sometimes, you know, divide what is aesthetic and what is political. I think it's interesting that 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 people keep really using political concepts a bit like they would be aesthetic concept without realizing it. And I find that fascinating. But it's of course it's just one small thing. It won't change anything that we know that or that we realize that. But I just think it's an interesting perspective on politics.
0: Yeah, I mean I think it could change something in, to some degree if you could really get people to understand it or 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 admit to it because we return to the bourgeois nature of many left groups, left political groups, both actually in terms of political parties but also in the art world and in academia that you know are they too too happy to just go along with an aesthetic and a lifestyle without actually really, you know, reaching out beyond their group. That That is something that is a personal kind of concern of mine that the people are not able to get beyond their group. But, you know, so many of us are anyway mm-hmm. introverts that, that in itself is difficult because then who's the one, who are going to be the ones we're going to send to go beyond our group? Oh. Because also it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a case of having social skills as well, which many academics don't have that could just go and Definitely. chat with you know,
1: <laughs> marginalized
0: groups um but, but I, wanted think, to, I
1: wanted
0: yeah, to sorry, on, just, no, no, carry on no 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 because i wasn't going to say anything go on
1: but but you think we could maybe reach out a bit more with memes this is actually one of your things right not to say it's a simple solution memes, but yeah
0: i think memes are bringing in a great many more people there are really a lot of young people younger millennials and generation z generation z that are um really getting into politics through memes yeah into left politics i think the initial kind of way they get into it i mean sometimes it's troubling because i think because memes lend themselves to extremism you get many more stalinists tankies as you would call them than than you might hope for but actually you know maybe maybe just getting many more people and a percentage of them are veering towards um totalitarian leftism um i don't know that Certainly, they're not all doing that, and, and and those people can be persuaded, or will maybe soften their view, or maybe some of them will will remain tankies forever. But I think we need we need all parts of the dialectic, so to speak. Um, that doesn't make enti- entirely make sense because dialectics are in kind of two parts. But we need many many different parts of the debate. It's just good that more people are getting into things through memes. It's yet to be kind of understood how we can make that more subtle. Or maybe give people a quasi-spiritual experience—the kind of thing that Adorno wanted to see through abstract art, so we could be more mindful of our relationship with with nature or with a natural object. Yeah. But yeah, I think that it would be great if we could achieve that as well. But I wanted to end on something because we haven't—I suppose—got much longer if we want the viewers to stay with us till the end. Um, I'm just thinking, actually, it's, it's kind of a fun question because I didn't have another question, but I—I th- I heard it somewhere that somebody said Benjamin. Is the better Marxist out of Benjamin and Adorno? Um, I don't know. I think it's kind of yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I feel kind of almost uncomfortable. But I mean, who, for for you, who is the better leftist out of Benjamin and Marx? Sorry, oh that would be even better. But out of Benjamin and Adorno.
1: Well, leftist is a very complicated concept. I'm not actually. I'm not sure if I would call myself always leftist, but. In some sense, Adorno daughter is very Hegelian. Uh, I would say Benjamin would be more Marxist, maybe, in, in my eyes, but also, uh, uh leftists that, that's a tricky issue. Is leftist a bit like, like, uh, you know,
0: uh, well, leftist is very broad, but I suppose I mean, concretely, uh, who is a more concretely, um, associated with with Marx, really, with, with the whole left spectrum? But okay, we, who is more. Towards getting stuff done in a in a broadly Marxist sense. I mean the question I suppose the original question I, I remember somebody talking about this was literally who was more Marxist. So, okay, that's fair enough. Who is the better Marxist?
1: Well, that's also an interesting question uh, uh, Maybe Benjamin in the end will be that I think Adorno is even more Hegelian and, and uh, He doesn't believe much in change uh, just trying to wake up people uh, You know a bit like in a religious way like Jesus is here uh, but but Benjamin also, uh, I think, in some interesting way, he's uh, he's looking at small things and small changes and definitely seems to believe that you can... He's, he's maybe a bit of a social democrat, actually, in some sense. And I know that's also a messy concept and many different ways of talking about it. But.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you'd have to look at their relationship to materialism. If you're thinking about Marx, how much do they see materialism as fundamental? And both were accused of being quasi-spiritual by people. Um, you know, it may be almost animistic. They see some kind of spirit in in objects, which is Hegelian. Um, but I actually think they're deeply materialist. I think the the way that Benjamin's looking at objects, uh, the way he wants to make constellations of objects, and to understand the history of Marxism through the objects he's seeing, I think that is Marxist. And I, and I think it's weird that Adorno tells him it's not Marxist enough um though Adorno actually in a way he he says that through the artwork you can kind of understand um what he calls the truth content of society the material relations of society because some somewhere when you're looking at an artwork that point when you get lost he says when you're no longer lost when you snap back into yourself that's when you you snap back yourself because you realize that you're looking at just material processes so yeah. you're listening to an orchestra and you that's get cool. lost in the classical music when you get snapped back into yourself, you realize that actually you have uh, the conductor, you have the various players of the instruments with, for example, their violin, which is made of wood and metal, which has all been kind of you know, taken out of the earth or constructed or, or manufactured by workers' hands. And actually the musicians are the kind of workers. So when you suddenly get thrown back into yourself, it's because you suddenly you realize the material fact of the, of the artwork or the, or the music piece, so in a way, it's also Marxist, but it's really, it's it's weird how little people see that, and how easily people disregard them as kind of wishy washy, um, you know, cultural thinkers with no material element. There probably needs to be something that is. Maybe I should write something on that. But anyhow, um, They might be
1: bo- they might be both. You know, they might be only theoretical. Yeah. People in some sense, but also I think they they have both sides.
0: Well, I think they're only yeah, exactly they're only theoretical, but then you you can get to like theories are also material as well, and I think that would kind of fit into how they both think. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think they're both more Marxist than than people take them to be. Would be my Probably. answer now. Probably. Uh Okay. So thank you, uh, thank you, Max, for being here. Thank you, everyone, for Thank staying you, with us. Thank you. Uh, that do was really check fun
1: out, to have a talk with
0: you. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it's good for me as well. That was one of probably the most fun so far. Oh, they've all been good. Sorry to everyone who I spoke to you before. Um, so check out On the Philosophy of Central European Art by Max Rieninen. Um It's a really interesting book. You can find it online. You can purchase it online.
1: Read Mike's okay, book on, on uh, memes.
0: Yeah, thank you. I have a book out, The Meming of Mark Fisher, this month. You can also find online. Uh, All right. So thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.